D.C.'s housing minister, Ravi Kalon, says the provincial government is ready to go it alone on a $1 billion strategy to buy and renovate those SROs, the single-room occupancy hotels, on the downtown east side and around Vancouver. That is, if the federal government does not commit to providing a significant investment toward the plan. Now, we heard that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did talk about housing and the housing crisis coming out of his retreat, his cabinet retreat in PEI today. Didn't have any details, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the days ahead. But on this $1 billion, you know, pick it up, pick up the responsibility type idea, well, Mike Howell is a reporter with Glacier Media Central Team. He's written about this. You can read it in various different articles or publications, including Vancouver is Awesome. Mike joins us now. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you, Bruce? I'm doing pretty well. More importantly, how are you? Great, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, this is interesting. Is this kind of like a temper tantrum, passive-aggressive? Why is the province going to be getting so involved to the point where they say, hey, we'll do it alone. We'll kick in a billion dollars. What have you found out in your reporting? Well, actually, uh, you know, some of your uh, listeners may know, um, you know, I've, I've written about the downtown east side for over 20 years. And in that reporting, I've also indicated that the B.C. government owns the majority of the SROs in the East Hastings corridor the city owns some as well but there's a lot owned by uh, private owners so there's been efforts over the years by the provincial government to buy up more of these sros and renovate them convert them into social self-contained social housing Uh, but in this case uh, what um, uh, mr kalon is talking about is, is in reference to what the city of vancouver staff have been pushing for several years now talking about a $1 billion strategy that would obviously take place over several decades, but um, to purchase up to 105 SROs, uh, to renovate them, to improve their rooms, to work with some of the private owners and the Chinese benevolent associations and societies that own some of these buildings. So whether it's a tempered tantrum or not, I think it's just frustration and, um, you know, with uh, Mr. Kalon as housing minister, and I happened to speak to Sean Fraser, the federal minister responsible for housing last week. I mean, these guys are in the hot seat uh, with housing when we hear stories about the average rent in July going for 3000 bucks uh, a month for a one-bedroom. Or 2000 bucks a month for a 200-square-foot room, just a room, in that yeah, same area. Hotel. Yeah, at the Lotus Hotel. Yeah, I wrote about that a, a couple of weeks ago, too. Um, so, yeah, no, it was an interesting conversation I had with Mr. Kalon. But uh, as he pointed out, uh, he had uh, met with Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland earlier this year. And, um, you know, she's signaling that there's going to be a big, quote-unquote, big update in the in the fall on housing. Whether that includes, um, you know, money for an SRO strategy that's not clear. However, uh, in my conversation with Minister Fraser, he indicated at the very least they would support elements of the plan. But, um, you know, his predecessor, Ahmed Hussein, uh, 
used the same uh, tone when I asked him questions about this back at City Hall when he visited Vancouver City Hall way back in November 2021. So there's no commitment yet, but, you know, as they always say, you know, we're, 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 we're having ongoing discussions and they're positive. <laughs> yeah. heard that many times. Well, ongoing discussions, but here's the thing. Uh, is one hand really talking to another when it comes to coming up with the ultimate plan, meaning they're all going to be on the same page? What's your feeling there? Or do we have different governments doing different things and different agencies doing different things? Well, I can't say that um, the the strategy that they're trying to develop, that the feds, the province and the city have all contributed one third to a two million dollar budget to create this plan. So they they are talking um, to each other. But I know when I asked a, a question at a recent press conference for a housing announcement on the downtown east side uh, for a ninety seven million dollar project that's uh, going to come out of the ground near the Raycam Community Center in East Hastings, you know, one senior city staffer said afterwards, "Oh, thank you for asking those questions because they're still unclear." And um, the city manager, Vancouver city manager, pointed out to council back in May that just to be clear, you guys, uh, we have no commitment from the province or feds on the stra- strategy. So there should be some advocacy work uh, for council here. So that's why you will see, um, you know, several councillors show up to these. Uh, housing announcements, uh, you know, when the provincial and federal ministers are there, uh, you know, maybe to, um, you know, uh, have a few minutes with them to express their concern about this. Because I, I guess, you know, some people hear about SROs, it's the downtown east side, yada, yada, yada. We hear more stories about the downtown east side, et cetera. But uh, the reason I continue to write about this is because SROs are seen as the, you know, last resort of shelter for many people before they end up homeless. And um, we all know the cost of homelessness uh, in the city. And there's been several studies, Bruce, that show that, um, you know, having emergency services and all the supports needed for somebody living on the street is much greater than somebody who is housed. So we have about 150 SROs in the city. About half of them are privately owned. The other half is uh, government and nonprofits. Uh, But because the cost of everything is going up and up and up. A lot of these private uh, owners say they just can't afford um, to keep up uh, with the maintenance, etc., of their hotels. So losing those, losing them to fires, poor maintenance, uh, people flipping them and spiking the rents up to two thousand bucks a month, as yeah. you alluded to. Um, these are all concerns, and um, you know somebody. Living on the west side of the city may not visibly see it, but, um, you know, when people lose their homes and ends up on the street, then uh, uh, in, in all neighborhoods, that's a real concern. So that's well, that's why I continue to write about this. And well, it's important writing, Mike, and, uh, you know, I don't want to focus too much on that one story because it got so much attention on social media, but I think it highlights a bit of an issue. And that story I'm talking mm-hmm. about, of course, is that 2000 uh, dollars for a 200 square foot apartment that likely did not even have a toilet but that yeah. is not or did it have a toilet we never found yeah. out maybe you know yeah yeah well see see I, there's a backstory there because two weeks previous to that i wrote a story about the lotus hotel and i, I talked to several tenants there who told me they were being pressured uh, by the owner uh, to accept buyouts and and the tenants i spoke to were paying 650 or less a month 
And uh, so what's been happening, there's been some stop work orders on the Lotus Hotel. Uh, what's been happening is that uh, people will take a cash buyout and then the new owner will go in there, renovate the room that was maybe renting for 600 bucks a month, and then we'll charge two grand a month for it. So, I mean, there's nothing illegal about that. The concern is just that, you know, somebody who's given 15 grand uh, cash buyout, um, you know, who maybe has uh, addiction issues, mental health issues, takes the 15 grand. Uh, by the end of that year, you know, good, good luck to them finding a place in Vancouver uh, where they're going to be able to afford um, to live when, I, you know, those prices of 2000 bucks a month, 15 grand doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't give you a lot of money to, um, you know, continue li- uh, living in an apartment downtown. So um, there's a lot of issues going on in the downtown east side uh, around SROs and housing and, um, you know, this focus on homelessness and clearing the streets, et cetera. It, it, you know, there's a lot of controversy there, but the bottom line is it's expensive and people are on the yeah. margins. Um, you know, it's uh, it's even more uh, compounded by um, by this type of approach. It's expensive, and as we know, there are different visions, whether you want to uh, look at getting people off the streets, that is one vision, and uh, to what degree that is the sole concentration. There's also the market uh, for people like students that may be coming in for a gentrified area. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe you know. But um, yeah. we're still dealing with that tension, aren't we? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And um, so, it, it, uh, you know, with the downtown east side and um, the price of housing, um, you know, the government, if they're going to spend money, uh, uh, they have to spend a lot of it to buy up these um, SROs. And I know one SRO owner in particular who owns eight SROs in the downtown east side, you, may, you know, the, the Hotel Empress, the West Hotel, um, key for rooms, places like that. He's he's been uh, you know quite upfront, and um, I've talked to him a few times. That uh, he he just wants the government to come in and buy his hotels because he he just can't afford to to run them the way he wants uh, to run them. So he um, has been in uh, conversations with um, with the BC government, and he figures that all SROs should be in the public domain um, rather than have just kind of patchwork of you know nonprofits and uh, private ownership uh, yeah. should all be in the public domain. That's his opinion. Mike Hal, thanks so much for your reporting on this very important topic, and it shows that journalism does matter. Yeah, thanks very much, Bruce. Maybe it's time to relax, maybe chill out a little bit. It's been such a heavy news cycle for the past couple weeks, uh, actually a couple months. And as we head into the final weeks of summer, maybe it's time to take a look at, you know, seeing something that is a little bit more entertaining. Here's one. It's being billed as bigger, bolder, and better than ever before. We're talking about the Vancouver Fringe Festival. It's going to be coming back. It takes place September 7th to the 17th at Granville Island and beyond, featuring comedy, awe-inspiring dance, their words, not mine, and also some lip-splitting spoken word. Okay, well, to explain more about what the Fringe Festival is all about and what you can see if you want to relax, chill out, and kind of take in something that you deserve in the next few weeks of summer. 
We're going to bring in our next guest, Duncan Watts Grant, Executive Director of the Vancouver Fringe Festival. Duncan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. I appreciate the time. Yeah, for those who aren't familiar with the Fringe Festival, what is it and what can you expect? Yeah, so the Vancouver Fringe Festival has been going on for 39 years. Uh, We follow a model that started in Edinburgh many years ago um, of creating space for performing artists that don't necessarily have space anywhere else. And so we select who's going to participate in our festival every year by drawing the names out of a hat, which is the fringe tradition. And so for the last 39 years, we've picked artists, uh, or rather artists have applied, we put their names in a hat and we've drawn them out. And this year we have uh, 85 different artists and shows who were drawn out of the hat back in February. And we'll we'll be presenting for 10 days uh, some traditional theater, comedy, stand-up, dance, drag, spoken word, and music, really every kind of performing arts you can possibly imagine. Uh, Like you said, we're mostly here on Granville Island for the course of those 10 days, although we're a little bit off the island as well. Uh, And it is an amazing opportunity for patrons and for uh, performing arts fans to check out something that they wouldn't have seen before or perhaps something a little off the beaten track. You know, Duncan, when I think of performances, there are those performances that are definitely high-priced tickets, and there are those performances that bring out the people that really know how to appreciate fine art. This is not that. This is kind of your lowbrow performance, isn't it? It's a, it's a mix of different things. I mean, to talk about accessibility of the festival, that's always been fundamental for us. And so our tickets are between 15 and $18. Um, But actually, more importantly than that is that of that $15 or $18, 100% of the base ticket price goes back to the artist. And so fundamentally, the Fringe is about inspiring the artists that are coming to us and presenting this work uh, and really supporting them. And so that means for patrons and for uh, for fans of the performing arts, um, it's a a very affordable festival for people to come and see, uh, more than one show even. Uh, Back many years ago when I started coming to the Fringe, I would see four shows in an evening. They're often quite short, an hour to 90 minutes. You can see a bunch of different things all in one evening. It's perhaps at times a mind-bending experience to see so much all in one go, Um, But I think that's the true uh, special fringe experience to to try and cram in as much as possible. Sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about how this works, the whole experience. Mm -hmm. If you were to, say, head down there, and I'm thinking, really, try transit. This is an area you want to leave the car at home for. But you head down to Granville Island. You've got your ticket. How does it work from there? What would be typically a route or something that people would end up seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So so people can book tickets on our website starting tomorrow, VancouverFringe.com. Um, as I said, the performances are often quite short. We're scattered around a bunch of different theatres all around Granville Island. We're also in three theatres just off the island, uh, just up the hill. Um, we also have outdoor shows. We have a few different outdoor shows that are, that are dotted around Granville Island that you can come check out for a really uh, unique experience seeing artists performing outdoors. Um, and then beyond that, we also have so much other entertainment. Every night at the, uh, at the Fringe Bar in the Ocean Artworks Pavilion, uh, we have live music or entertainment for people to come and check out. Um, and it becomes a, a really a sort of half theater, performing arts festival, half party down on Granville Island for those 10 days. And uh, if people don't know what they might want to check out, 
Um, I'll give you the secret of the, the best oh. way to determine what they want to go see. On our opening night on September 6th, we have our Fringe for All. Um, so we have 30 artists lined up who are going to perform two minutes from their show so that audiences can get just a tiny taste of what they're going to be uh, seeing if they go and see that show. Oh, and cool. so you get to watch 30 shows condensed down into one evening and see what you might want to get go and see. So that's on September 6th at 7 p.m. at Performance Works Theater. Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me how this fits into Vancouver's arts community uh, on the whole. Yeah, I, I think something that's really important for the Fringe is that we become a place for both artists to try new things because we don't uh, pick who's going to perform. We we leave it up to chance. Um, we have this this really unique opportunity for artists who may not be able to have their art presented anywhere else to come in and show it at the Fringe. Um, but it's also, for the same reason, a place for emerging artists. And an emerging artist might mean someone who's just finished their you know, degree in dance or music or theater. But, but we also have um, retirees who have, have finished their career and they've written a show and they want to come and present it. And so that idea of emerging artists is fundamental to what we do and who we are, that we support artists who are coming to try something Sometimes it's, it's risky. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's the, you know, maybe it's a, a very weird show or an odd show. Maybe sometimes it's the best thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I've certainly had those experiences. Um, but, but becoming a, a hub and a nexus for artists who are trying things, who are, who are willing to be a bit risky, who are coming out and trying a new experience, just as our audiences are as well. That's really fundamental to, to what we offer and who we are as an organization in Vancouver. You know, Duncan, I, I'm the type of guy that loves going with somebody and seeing something that was odd. And uh, just after a performance, I'm thinking, taking a look at that person, just saying, okay, then. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. Just kind of like, wow, that was out there. And I guess this is the type of thing you're getting, isn't it? It is, and I think there's something really special. I've had this, I've been coming to the Fringe for 12 years, and um, the thing that I had, you know, really early on was, was walking into a show that I never would have chosen. I, I, I never would have selected it had it been in any other, any other setting. You know, I think we, whether it's in performing arts or any other kinds of arts and culture or media that we consume, we have a culture that really, you know, does it, it does it research. It, it, you know, we read reviews, we look into things, and one of the really special things about the fringe is that people come here and come to see shows really without knowing much about it at all. They'll look at our program guide with a, you know, sort of two sentence description and, and a length of how long it is. And they'll come and see that show. Um, and it takes people out of their comfort zone. Sometimes it also means that people experience things that yeah. they weren't expecting. And I've had that so many times coming to the fringe. Duncan, if people want more information, the website is vancouverfringe.com tickets go on sale tomorrow um, and so i encourage people to to check it out and hope they join us down on grandpa island looking forward to it thanks so much for your time thanks so much bruce have a good day now, Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Thanks for spending this portion of your Wednesday afternoon with us. Let's talk a little bit about Milwaukee and what's happening there tonight. Eight Republican presidential candidates not named Donald Trump are going to be competing tonight in the highly anticipated first debate of the primary season. Well, the former president, current GOP frontrunner by a long shot, plans to skip the whole thing and is taking part in a bit of a counter-program. His interview pre-taped with conservative commentator 
Tucker Carlson. That's an interesting move and one that perhaps he doesn't have to worry so much about. But for the rest of the eight, it is a whole different game. And to talk a little bit more about that, let's bring in Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us. Got to ask, Donald Trump is so far ahead in this race. Does tonight even really matter? Well, I mean, look, it does matter in the fact that Donald Trump is the leading candidate uh, for the Republican Party right now. Uh, and it matters because he says his poll numbers are high. He says that his policies are well known uh, and that he doesn't need to be on stage. But what it doesn't allow for is him to be able to answer for anything that's either in his current legal saga or in his past political history. I mean, look, he's one of the only, if not the only person on the stage running on a record, especially on a presidential record. And if he's not there um, able to answer to anything, I think that uh, it potentially puts the other candidates in a better position to kind of put a target on Donald Trump to criticize him. And he won't be there to be able to fend off any of those comments. It's really an interesting one, Reg, because you've got Donald Trump as uh the front runner or presumed to be the front runner by a long shot, but this is the first presidential uh, primary debate. Uh, So what are the candidates going to do when it comes to policy and talking about how they would be different than a Joe Biden? Are they even going to address that? Is that going to be a concentration? Sure. I think that for for all eight people that are on stage, this is going to be an opportunity not just to attack the kind of elephant that's not in the room uh, with Donald Trump not being there. This is an opportunity for them to focus on the present and what they see is a struggling and failing economy across the United States that they put the blame on the shoulders uh, of President Joe Biden. And this will be an opportunity not only for these candidates, many of them to kind of introduce themselves to the American public, Uh, but also to hit back at what they see are problems that are coming out of the Oval Office. You are going to hear uh, the economy discussed. You are going to hear inflation discussed. You are going to hear uh, money repeated over and over again. Um, And and this is that opportunity for the eight on stage to take the policies that some people may know about and expand on them. It's really going to be a test for Ron DeSantis. He is the number one on the stage, the number two in the crowd. And he has some policies that have failed him as of recent and have become a bit of a target. He now becomes the biggest target on the stage. So does he have Ron DeSantis the most to gain, the most to lose? Would that be fair to say? Combination of both. He has the most to gain here in that he can pitch himself as the alternative to Trump. He's further right than Trump. He carries the Trumpism flag higher than anyone else on stage does, uh, including Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence. But he also has the most to lose here. This is going to be the brightest spotlight that is on Ron DeSantis since he entered this race. And if he doesn't have kind of a, a gotcha moment or a, a kind of big moment where he's able to put the target on somebody else that might not even be Donald Trump, um, he is going to potentially sink here, especially because uh, he came out strong. He has really been flaming out over the last few weeks. And many of the policies that have been going play in place in Florida have, have found themselves criticized by some of the Republican candidates on stage. And if he can't come out from that, uh, this could be a a difficult moment for for DeSantis to try and run forward and say, look, it should be me. Is there any possibility we may see some surprises, somebody coming out and saying something that's really shocking and that's going to stir things up and make some new headlines? 
Sure, it's possible. I mean, you have people that are on the lower rung of this uh, campaign right now that are actively trying to get themselves a bigger name, that are trying to find themselves uh, in a position of more people knowing who they are. And that includes Vivek Ramaswamy, who has come out as a staunch Trump supporter while trying to appeal to a different part of the Republican base. And look, uh, he's he's in the low you know, double digits right now and in around 10 or 11 percent. But that's good enough for number three. So there's a chance here that he could come out um, you know, stronger than he did going in. The similar situation for someone like Chris Christie. He is vehemently opposed to another Trump term uh, and has become one of the biggest critics of the former president. Uh, he oftentimes is sharp with the jabs, uh, and we can expect that there are going to be sound bites from Chris Christie, maybe even from Mike Pence, who have been both critical of Donald Trump, his past, the last few months of Trump's presidency, uh, and how he's been conducting himself as of late. We know that Trump did a pre-recorded interview with Tucker Carlson earlier, and uh, that's going to air simultaneously at the same time tonight at 6 o'clock uh, Pacific time as the actual debate. What is the reason for that, and what's Donald Trump himself going to be doing if this thing is pre-recorded? Well, I mean, look, Donald Trump's going to watch the election. I mean, if rather the, the debate, if anybody's watching Trump's, you know, truth social account, you're likely going to see posts being made that are critical of the people that are on stage. And look, the reason that he opted to sit down with uh, with Tucker Carlson, you know, former Fox News host, putting this out on the platform once known uh, as Twitter is simply a way to counter program this. He doesn't think that he that the spotlight needs to be fully on eight people debating. He thinks that he can pull some of the voting base in his direction by doing something that's online uh, and, and by not being, you know, um, kind of bound by the confines of a moderated debate. Tucker Carlson is very likely going to allow Trump to say things without checking or countering some of the things that Trump is saying. And it allows him to go off the cuff and to speak freely at the same time, though, being potentially mindful that what he does say could come back to get him because he has several you know, lawyers and district attorneys and judges telling him that he needs to watch his mouth. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. The words of Donald Trump. He still contends that he is an innocent man and it's democracy that's on trial tomorrow. Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini continues with us from Atlanta, Georgia. Reggie, the king of the double down, Donald Trump, still thinks he's innocent of interfering in the election, including trying to influence the results in Georgia. What do you think? Sure. I mean, this is no different than any of the other uh, indictments and arrests that we've seen of Donald Trump in the past. He's been arrested three times already. Uh, this is now going to be the fourth. He continues to use his social media account and his um, surrogates to push back by claiming that he's not only innocent, but doubling down on the claims of 2020 election fraud, both at the national level and here uh, in Georgia. And he is he is making this a spectacle about himself, putting the spotlight on himself, discussing his own arrest, saying that this is for the American people, you know, courtesy of weaponized justice systems around the U.S. But at the end of the day, Trump is treating this simply like another political campaign matter, despite the fact that he is about to find himself being fingerprinted and have his weight and height taken and a mugshot taken that's likely going to be released publicly. A lot is uh, being made of whether he's going to be angry or not, whether he is angry or not. What do you expect to see? 
Well, I mean, look, I think Donald Trump is potentially angry here. And, you know, he's, he's got a team around him that's working to ensure that this goes in his uh, in his favor. But at the end of the day, you know, how, how Trump deals with tomorrow is likely going to be uh, the same that we've seen in the past. He's going to use this as an opportunity to fundraise and whatever anger may be boiling up inside of him because uh, he is you know, finding himself backed further and further into a corner. Uh, it ultimately works, at least financially, at the end of the day, because at the end of each uh, arrest, at the end of each arraignment, we see his fundraising numbers go up and his campaign is able to use this as an opportunity to say, look, this is Democrats. This is X, Y and Z going after your favorite president. So regardless of how Trump feels on the inside, it's what's on the outside that most of his supporters are looking for. And if he comes across as someone that's you know, sticking it out and strong through all of this, at the end of the day, it works for him politically. What about Rudy Giuliani? Now, we know that he turned himself in earlier this afternoon. Is he going to be friend or foe for Donald Trump? Well, I mean, look, Don, uh, Rudy Giuliani is, is struggling, at least financially here. And we know that he went to former President Trump looking for uh, a bit of a handout to try and cover off some of the legal bills that are coming in. Legal bills that are coming in because Rudy Giuliani tied himself to these bogus claims of fraud. And there are consequences with that now. Look, I think anybody who is tied to these indictments is going to do what's best for them, both you know, potentially politically, but also in the long term for their own uh, you know, legal way forward. And if it means that Rudy Giuliani has to still defend the, the former president, but, you know, does so in a way that makes him look like, you know, less of a, a, a person who's, who's involved in all of this, that's going to work for him. But at the end of the day, all of these people are tied to the former president for one simple reason, and it's they tried to keep Trump in power despite the fact that he lost an election. So friend or foe of the former president, he has been implicated at the state level and at the federal level for his actions. We also know that Donald Trump is somewhat disappointed with uh, Rudy Giuliani not coming up with evidence of fraud. That was his one job. Uh, is Donald Trump going to throw Rudy under the bus yet again? I mean, look, it's possible. Trump is, is known to throw anyone under the bus so long as it can potentially save him in the future. And I mean, look, even Trump uh, just this week on Monday was supposed to come out with a news conference to to provide this new evidence that showed that there was some kind of, um, you know, interference or fraud in the 2020 election. And ultimately, his lawyers had to talk him out of that. So he's still going strong with this. And whether it's Rudy Giuliani that's thrown under the bus or another lawyer attached to him, Sidney Powell or John Eastman, or if he even decides to throw his own former chief of staff under the bus, Mark Meadows, who's actively trying to you know, save his own political hide here, um, Trump is in it for himself, and he will do what he can to ensure that he comes out strongest. Reg, what else are you expecting to see, and what should we be watching for as this all plays out tomorrow? Well, yeah, I mean, what to watch for uh, is is any comment that comes from the former president after the arrest takes place and in the two weeks. We've got his arrest on Thursday, but his arraignment is not scheduled till sometime after Labor Day, and he is on a kind of tightened belt here from the district attorney into what he can say about the, the, the case, what he could say about witnesses, and what he can say on social media. And there's a real opportunity here that he could find himself in more political hot water based on the things that he says. So it's kind of a watch this space surrounding Donald Trump for the next 10, 11, or 12 days. But also, Bruce, there's something to watch here on Monday is he has another court case uh, that's expected in Washington, D.C. on the federal election interference case. And that's going to be when a court case is actually decided. Special counsel wants this to happen at the beginning of January. There's a lot of legal drama that's about to come down to the former president over the next 96 hours.
It's going to be a very busy time for Donald Trump, not only in those hours ahead, but also in the weeks and months ahead. This is a distraction indeed. Why are the other GOP candidates not playing this whole thing out as Donald Trump is simply distracted and leaving it there? Why are they coming to his defense? At the end of the day, it all has to do with support and it has to do with numbers. Donald Trump still has a commanding lead on the Republican Party and on the Republican voter. Uh, and by, by, by angering the voter, you potentially distance yourself from a vote that you might need, regardless uh, of whether Trump is in the race or not. So these candidates, some of them, are trying to carry Trumpism forward, trying to ensure that they're being friendly to Donald Trump, while potentially sidestepping the legal matters that he's found himself in, at the same time not angering the person that they're ultimately going to need if Trump is out, and they're the one who wants to secure this nomination. Okay, Reggie, thanks so much. Appreciate that. Jazz is away this week. I'm Bruce Clackett in for him in the chair. Well, we all know that B.C. is a very expensive province, a place that is not easy to live in on most salaries. In fact, there is minimum wage and then there is what has been dubbed fair wage. And fair wage, even though it's not high to begin with, is that amount of money that you actually need to just get by in some of the more expensive places, the urban centers in this province. Well, the B.C. government, interestingly enough, is shutting down a commission it created. It created this to improve the pay for the province's lowest paid workers. And it's shutting this down despite some of the objections of labor leaders and even the members of this commission. Last week, the provincial labor ministry quietly published a report, its final report, into the Fair Wages Commission, examining that gap between minimum wage and living wage. And guess what? You need uh, to basically still cover this gap. That gap is getting wider, and uh, the oversight of it is gone completely. Well, someone identifying a problem with this notion is Adam Olson, B, uh, BC Green Party MLA for Saanich, uh, Saanich North and the Islands. Adam, thanks so much for being with us again. Are you surprised by this move? Well, I mean, I think the uh, Fair Wage Commission was uh, negotiated into the uh, Competence and Supply Agreement back in 2017 between me and my colleagues in the BC Green Caucus and the BC NDP uh, minority government at that time, uh, clearly it was uh, part of the policy um, ideas that we had uh, in our in our platform and was not part of the BC NDP's policy ideas. The BC NDP were promising at the time a $15 an hour minimum wage. They, they uh, as they do well, they were um, gripped by the slogans and um, and instead of instead of putting forward a, a policy that reflected what the needs of British Columbians were, they they were targeting a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. And certainly, I, you know, I think a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage uh, is helpful for workers. But I, I think the Fair Wage Commission, uh, from the policy book that we had, was designed in order to remove the politics from uh, the the initiative, uh, bring economists, uh, put people with uh, with the academic background and the understanding of the issue uh, into a room to find what uh, what a, a fair wage would look like. The fair wage and the minimum wage are very far apart now. They didn't start off that way. 
Um, well, they were still pretty far apart, but that gap has grown. Do you think that gap is behind the move to actually back away from this? Uh, look, I mean, I think that uh, my sense of it was that the this BC NDP government didn't ever want to have uh, that kind of ongoing accountability mechanism. They didn't want to have uh, anybody telling them uh, what it is that uh, the, the way should be. Like, like I said, and I think it's not. Um, a point that should be uh, underestimated here was that at that time, back in 2017, when when they created this commission, or when we created the commission through the Competence and Supply Agreement, uh, it was a, a, a campaign of $15 an hour minimum wage was what the later labor movement was pushing for. It, it was a, um, um, a number that was being used, I think, in Seattle. So the idea of a fair wage commission uh, arm's length from government, set aside from government that could both, you know, produce, I think, a, a number that a government should be uh, striving for and as well hold government accountable, uh, potentially critique government, um, you know, having experts uh, in a position to critique government, uh, I don't think was necessarily what was comfortable for them. So um, they went through the, the process. They uh, created uh, the Fair Wage Commission uh, they then tasked the Fair Wage Commission with coming up with a way uh, to to get the minimum wage to $15, which was uh, what their goal was. Uh, it then survived a, a few more years, and now you, we see uh, the, the Minister of Labor uh, shutting it or or not tasking it with uh, with any other questions to answer. Okay, well, the Commission, I guess, had three tasks, and some of these were a success, and I would question the success of some of the others. But let's uh, take a look at that. Uh, chatting of or charting a path to increase the uh, minimum wage to $15 an hour, that was done. Success, right? Yep. yep. Okay, number two, making recommendations around workers who don't get that minimum wage, uh, like farm workers, and advising government on how to narrow the large gap between the minimum wage and what's needed for people to live. Did we do that? Yep, the advice was uh, second report. Advice was given. Um, and I think there's probably still a gap there, but uh, but I think that you could say, did they achieve the the target? I think they did. Yeah. And then going on from that, there was a third recommendation, and it included some of the advice from groups like labor groups in uh, what uh, would be the going ahead approach. How are we in dealing with that? Well, I think uh, one of the challenges that, uh, that this government faces, and frankly, you know, any government in British Columbia faces right now, is that uh, in addition to what was already a, an increasing gap, as you as you pointed out, Bruce, uh, between uh, the wages that people are making and the wages that people need in order to be able to live a dignified, respectful life in this province, uh, continue to grow. That gap continues to grow, and uh, that this uh, Fair Wage Commission said, look. Keep us, uh, empower us to continue to do this work. That was the the main recommendation coming out of this report. Um, but it also they also highlighted some some areas in which, um, you know, if if the government is going to not adopt a, a, a across the board policy around fair wages, then they needed to take a look at food, shelter, telecommunications, and transportation. So the government did give some direction uh, to the government that they should be looking at in order to reducing costs. So British Columbians' uh, uh, cost of living and the amount that they're making uh, come into closer alignment. Uh, and I think, you know, as a 
in my constituency office, uh, and I think uh, MLAs right across the province are hearing from their constituents that that uh, the untenable situation that many British Columbians are facing right now with respect to the income and their expenses. Somebody might say that, uh, you know, when you have a fair wage, a so-called fair wage out there, and peg the number at something like $24 an hour and compare it to the minimum wage of sixteen seventy-five an hour, I guess, back uh, last year, you know, working with older numbers here, but... Um, with that big gap, uh, why even have a minimum wage? I mean, the minimum wage isn't fair. So is well, it embarrassing to have that around and have two different numbers? Well, this, this was the argument that I think we made back in 2017. Uh, and, and that was that um, rather than, rather than, you know, look, it costs different amounts to live in different parts of the province. And so this was one of the challenges that we had. And so um, rather than having government politicize a minimum wage, this is how much everybody in the province, the the lowest amount you can make no matter where you live, um, I I guess setting that number, it's fine. It it just means that it's fair for all British Columbians that that they're not going to make less than, than that number. However, I think when you flip that around and look at fairness through a different lens, um, what does it take in order for people to live in Vancouver? What does it take for people to live in Victoria, in Kelowna, in Prince George, uh, and in smaller communities? Those are all different numbers. And so what we were hoping to get at when, when we were encouraging uh, this commission in, initially was for us just to have an honest look at, at what cost of living in British Columbia was and and be very open about that and, and be targeting and, and be work and have government working with employers and, and government working with with other levels of government uh, to ensure that the wages that they were paying reflected uh, the cost, you know, and and that there was some balance there. And so um, the, the setting a baseline, I think, is fine, but it's just a baseline. And, and I think that the Fair Wage Commission had uh, and has other value than than just setting the baseline depoliticizing it's very important but then being able to take a look at and 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 ask questions of government's policy uh, to ensure that um, like I said people in British Columbia are able to to live a, a dignified respectful life with the wages that they're making and, and not feel the constant pressure of the costs that are rising and we've seen with inflation we as you know we come out of the COVID-19 the, the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic and where we're at right now um you know, I, thinking back to 2017, I couldn't even consider some of the, the realities that we're facing now that uh, we weren't considering back then. But but certainly the cost of living, I mean, even the BCNDP have abandoned their slogan that they adopted for the first uh, three years of their of their time in government of making life more affordable. I can't remember the last time that I heard a, a, a BCNDP cabinet minister uh, repeat that slogan. So, you know, I think that it's an admission that that. Uh, the, the cost of living is far outpacing what British Columbians are making. The cost of housing are increasing. The cost of food, cost of uh, telecommunications and transportation, as the Fair Wage Commission points out, are all costs that uh, are making it very, very difficult to, for British Columbians to keep sure. pace. We're talking with Adam Olson, B- BC Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, about BC shutting down the Fair Wages Commission uh, the politicization, that's uh, that's a good point here. And there is more than just the benchmark. 
as you pointed out. But there is that benchmark and a fair wage in Metro Vancouver back in 2022. Seems like so long ago. Last year was $24.08. Now I'm guessing after inflation, when you work in the formula, you're up over $25 an hour. There are lots of businesses that would simply argue, we can't pay $25 an hour. That's not fair to us. That's way out of line. And it has become more out of line and more unrealistic. Is that part of the reason you think we have to, well, not we have to, but the government thinks it has to get away from uh, this idea, this notion of a fair wage? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fair wage campaign was always a voluntary campaign, whereas the minimum wage is compulsory. So, you know, $15 is the, is the bottom line, and um, or, or whatever that number is now is the bottom line at, at the minimum wage. And so, whereas the fair wages is a, um, is a, was a voluntary uh, program. And I think that um, what, uh, what that does is it, is it creates a, a narrative. It creates a conversation in our society. This is how much it costs to live. There's the minimum wage, a number, you know, almost $10 gap between the two of them. That's the challenge that, that this government, that's the challenge that any provincial government has uh, to, to try to craft and develop policy that's, that's a way to balance that. Now, it doesn't take a fair wage commission to come up with those numbers. University economists, uh, you know, scholars, academics, experts, uh, ex- expert economists, they, they could come up with those numbers. But what a fair wage commission does uh, is it's a, it's a body that, that, the, that the government um, can trust to pull together good data and good information in order to paint the picture as it is. And so uh, if a government doesn't want to see the picture as it is, then they don't have a fair wage commission doing that work for them. They, they trust others to be able to gather the information for them. But, and, you know, I, I think what we see here in, in this situation is the, the, the uh, fair wage commission comes in, or sorry, the, um, yeah, the commission comes in with a with a, a number and a report, uh, but it also says, look, like if you're not going to increase the minimum wage to what that what what that uh, that fair wage is, then here are some other areas, and this is the reason why I've been pointing out the the other areas that this commission has 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 highlighted because these are the areas that the provincial government should be working on policy in the upcoming fall session and the spring yeah. session coming. Uh, in order to be able to make life, to, let's go back to the slogan that the BC NDP adopted for themselves, to make life affordable for British Columbians. Understandable. Adam Olson, there is so much more to talk about with this one, but uh, thanks for sharing your time with it uh, for a very important topic as BC shuts down that Fair Wages Commission. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for your time. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.